Well, not so. <clears throat> so before we venture in, I'd just like to very briefly and informally introduce a friend of mine I met in England a couple of years ago. I'll just say, we'll say Robert. We're all on first names basis here. Uh, Robert and his family have been very, very supportive of preserving the Buddha Dharma in the modern world. I'm ha- very happy to have him here for roughly 10 days or so, something like that. And just to the extent that you'd like to join us, you're welcome to do so. The de- de- to the extent that you'd like to be just in a purely solitary retreat, it's wide open. Okay. Uh, so, today, as you all know, in the, so in the afternoon, just briefly, Robert, in the afternoons, we're, oh, and I see Klaus is joining us, so I'm going to wait until he comes in the door. So for Robert's benefit, this will be very short, but for Robert's benefit, in the morning we've been going through a cycle of 10 days, uh, each morning exploring a phase of three different methods of shamatha, uh, the mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind in its natural state, or observing the mind, and then awareness of awareness. And so for a course of 10 days, then I, I give guided meditations to give the nuances of each, of each of these three methods. And in the afternoons, in this longer session, we begin in a similar cycle of 10 days, going through the four immeasurables, or Brahma-viharas. And so right now we're in the midst of compassion. And the way I like to unpack this, as everybody else knows here, is yesterday we were focusing on compassion, especially with respect to the most obvious dimension of suffering, blatant suffering, the suffering of suffering. And a very brief review. I think it's, it's worth the time. And that is in terms of the three fundamental poisons of the mind, this this blatant suffering is most directly related to anger, hatred, aggression, ill will. Number one, as soon as it arises, we're already unhappy. Nobody feels great happiness and then out of happiness starts to be enraged. There has to be something that makes it unhappy first. And so it comes out of unhappiness and then psychologically speaking, there's some very interesting and, and important differences here in terms of the psychological take or interpretation of the nature and role of anger versus the Buddhist. And it's good to recognize where the differences lie. I've heard Paul Ekman and other real experts speak on this. And by and large, psychologists, at least the ones I have met, say say that anger is simply an intrinsic element of the human psyche. I mean, we're just hardwired to respond with anger to certain situations, specifically when we encounter an obstacle to something we want, or a corollary is when we get something we don't want, right? And so it's useful. It's useful. And the psychologists I've spoken with speak of anger as being a problem only when it's excessive. So then we have anger management and so forth. To do what? To bring it back into tolerable levels. And that's where it should be. But if it goes too low, then you have a problem. If it goes too high, you have a big problem. So just a tolerable level, the proper level. That traces right back to Aristotle. And so the Buddhist take on this is fundamentally different. And that is, it's not like having a tolerable level, the optimal level of TB. Having too little is kind of like TB deficient. deficient. Having too much TB kills you. The mental affliction of anger is an affliction. It's toxic. It's a, men- it's a disease of the mind. But this is not simply a direct refutation of, kind of modern psychology, because what is so crucial here is when we speak of the mental affliction of anger or hatred and so forth, by definition, it's always rooted in delusion, a misapprehension of reality. That is crucial. But if, if anger comes out, ferocity, wrathfulness comes out, and it's not rooted in delusion, it's not a mental affliction. If anger, when it arises, does not distort our perception of what we're angry about, it's not a mental affliction. 
So the mental affliction, the klesha of anger, always does that by definition. It focuses on something disagreeable. It decontextualizes it. So it, it, it becomes blind to pratita samupada, the dependent origination, the many, many factors that go into the creating the event. It just isolates on a person, a place, a thing, an event, locks into it, and then sees it as somehow intrinsically evil and intrinsic source of misery, that it's intrinsically bad. But it's the decontextualization, the reification, and then as we view something with anger, this mental affliction of anger, we tend to exaggerate its negative qualities, be blind to its positive qualities, and tilt even the neutral qualities over to the negative side. So therefore, it is really a distortion. It's klishta, which means distorted, which is directly related to klesha. So I think it's, we, no, no commentary is needed to be aware of how much misery is created in the world, blatant misery, suffering of suffering, that comes about because of the mental affliction of anger. Right? Having said that, just a little bit more of, of kind of review that never took place, that is, I never mentioned this yesterday. Is there, in terms of authentic Buddhist practice, let's say a bodhisattva way of life, is there ever any role for anger? And the answer is yes. There are four, four classic modes of bodhisattva activity that are all can equally be displays, manifestations of compassion. The first of these is, is calming, soothing, pacifying. That makes sense. The second one is expansive, where we enrich the lives of others with knowledge, with material goods, what have you. The third one is, is, is that of power, where we exert power in a benevolent and useful way. And the fourth one is ferocity. Ferocity. There are occasions when the other three don't work, where a display of ferocity is the most effective way to alleviate suffering and to address injustice and so forth in the world, but it's ferocity motivated by compassion and rooted in wisdom rather than rooted in delusion and manifesting out of just sheer you know, confusion. So, and a final point on, as, as a recap of yesterday, among the three higher trainings of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, it is really unethical behavior, unethical behavior, unwholesome behavior, harmful behavior that is most directly related to blatant suffering. So that is a review. But now, what is, you know, what are the, what's the demarcation between virtue and non-virtue, wholesome and, and unwholesome? Of course, one can respond to this, answer that question in the Buddhist worldview, in the context of Buddhist worldview, saying, well, karmic effects from lifetime to lifetime. But that, for most of us, is not something we can evaluate. We can't see ahead what are, what are going to be the long-term consequences. But here is another way of take, a take, and it's truly Buddhist, but it's within this life, so it's experiential. And that is, an action of body, speech, or mind is non-virtuous, akushala, non-virtuous, unwholesome, if it's detrimental to our own or others' genuine happiness. And so the distinction, again, between hedonic well-being and genuine happiness is crucial. The genuine happiness being a sense of well-being that arises from within, that's not dependent upon pleasurable stimuli. Right? So it's perfectly clear that there's a lot of non-virtuous or un unwholesome behavior that can be very conducive for finding hedonic pleasure. We can exploit people. We can deceive people and get money from them. And we can enjoy the money. So, good, that really worked out well. I cheated, I exploited, I lied, I robbed. And look at all the money I got. And man, it makes me happy. And so I get a lot of hedonic. There's no question about that. So unwholesome behavior can definitely yield hedonic pleasure for the short term. But even in that same process, it's undermining genuine happiness for oneself and others. So that's something practical. 
So then we move on to the topic for today, the shift, the deepening of the cultivation of compassion. Again, compassion being an aspiration and not simply an emotion. We go to a deeper level that now calls for something more than simply feeling what's happening, pleasure, pain, indifference. It really calls for some insight, and that is to recognize a deeper dimension of suffering called the suffering of change. And this, of course, is not intrinsic in the very nature of experiencing change. It is intrinsic to experiencing change with the mental affliction of attachment. Attachment, craving, greed, like that, the mental affliction. As soon as that's there, even, and this is the subtlety of it, one may be intensely attached to something, holding on for dear life or craving because one hasn't gotten it yet, and it can feel good. It feels good. And once you've acquired it and you're holding on with sheer tenacity, this is mine, 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 it can feel good. And from a Buddhist perspective, that pleasurable feeling you're right now, you're experiencing right now, is of the nature of suffering. It's like a time bomb. It's only a matter of time before that, since the attachment is there, before that happiness gives way to frustration, anxiety, misery, and so forth, because it's built into the process. It's already there. It's just waiting to manifest. So... Among the three mental afflictions, the root mental afflictions, that which is so obviously directly correlated to the suffering of change is the mental affliction of attachment, craving, greed, and so forth. Once again, we had a conference at Stanford several years back that I helped to organize with a Tibetan and some other people. And this came out again that from the psychological perspective that I heard, I think there's something like 250 schools of psychology, so I certainly can't refer to all of them, but the very, from the very learned psychologists that I engage with there, this desire, craving, is a problem only if it's excessive. And once again, like anger, if it's excessive, then you've got a problem. It's addiction, it's craving, what have you. It's all those problems. If it's too little, then you need, psycho, you need psychotherapy or a drug or something. You can't jazz, jazz up your desire again. If you lose your sex drive, oh, terrible, terrible, give a guy a drug. Um, so it's just kind of looking for moderation. It's Aristotle all over again. Just have a moderate amount. Once again, the Buddhist take is different. And that is, the Buddha spoke of having such a passionate yearning for enlightenment that it's as if your hair is on fire. Well, that's pretty single-pointed. You know, if your hair's on fire, you're not going to be thinking of anything else. And so that would be a really intense longing, but from the Buddhist perspective, that's just fine, to have an intense longing for liberation an intense longing to alleviate the suffering of others. It may be an overwhelming longing and aspiration and desire, and it's just fine. And it's not a mental affliction. So the mental affliction of craving is just the flip side of the mental affliction of hostility or anger, hatred. And that is now when it's focusing on something that seems to be intrinsically a source of well-being, one locks onto it with attachment, with I've got to have it, I want it. And once again, the cognitive distortion of seeing the attractive qualities exaggerated the neutral qualities tipped over to the positive and the negative qualities are screened out. So it's delusional. It's rooted in delusion. It's decontextualized and it's reifying the object. So once again, as with hatred, the mental affliction of attachment and craving is always rooted in delusion. And if it's not, it's not a mental affliction. So that's a big difference. So once again, from the Buddhist perspective, if you have just a little bit of the mental affliction of anger, you're mildly perturbed, it's still a mental affliction. You want to be free of it totally. Right? And likewise, you have just a little bit of craving and attachment, the mental affliction. Well, it's still a mental affliction. You want to be, have none of it. right? And yet you may have passionate yearning for many other things, but without the mental affliction. So there it's clear. And then once again, we don't need much imagination 
to review how much suffering, how much unnecessary suffering arises in the world that's all ignited by the mental affliction of craving, greed, attachment. Among the three higher trainings, that which is the direct antidote, as ethics is the antidote for so much of the overt suffering in the world, if we can just treat each other decently, so much suffering would just vanish. Likewise, in terms of this level, ethics by itself won't be enough. But samadhi is the key. The cultivation of samadhi. What we're doing here, the shamatha, the shamatha. Because what happens there is one is tapping into an actual source of well-being. You're, su- you're tapping into your own substrate consciousness, the alaya vijnana. It's by nature blissful. And so you're tapping into that, and the more you tap into that, and I've heard one person recently speak just in these first two weeks, of tapping into a, a flow of loveliness. That sounds good. And it wasn't stimulus-driven. It was coming right from the nature of the mind. Another person recently spoke to me of just, in the first two weeks, experiencing a tranquility that was unprecedented, a degree of serenity, tranquility, just coming out. Another one just recently spoke to me of bliss coming out. And then, of course, others just today, somebody mentioned, exceptional degree of clarity, vividness, luminosity, a brightness that spills over into in-between sessions. So what we're having even in two weeks here is seeing these shafts of light, these displays of the fundamental qualities of the alaya vijnana, I'm speaking from the Dzogchen perspective, of course, of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, the third one being serenity, coming up even in the first couple of weeks. And you taste it. And you know it's yours because you're not getting it from any outside source. I will absolutely guarantee I'm not transmitting it to you. You know, from 23, 27, I'm not going beam, 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 beam. Oh, your turn, bliss, have some bliss. Not me, not me. I'm not culpable there. And so there's the antidote. And that is the more that one starts to taste, to discover one's own internal resources, then why on earth would you go out Side with craving and attachment for something you can already find inside with no props and no support and no anxiety. Because as soon as I go out lunging out to grasp onto something in this hunter-gatherer mode, I, I should be anxious. Because if I grab onto it, just how, it's only a question of how long will it be before I lose it. And if I don't get it, then I'm frustrated. So why go out at all in a spirit of craving and attachment when you're finding the happiness you're seeking in a room with nice air conditioning? That's about it. It's a nice room, but really, it's pretty much a room with air conditioning. I mean, no offense, but it's a simple room, which is exactly what we wanted here. Uh, All of the televisions, as you know, are all turned off. (laughs) So there we are. And I'll end on this point before we just plunge into the meditation. And that is, even the mental affliction of anger, it's not rotten to the core. It's not an affliction to the core. It becomes afflictive only when we're entering into this cognitive fusion with it. When we grasp onto it and identify with it, then it certainly does afflict. And we know that whether in the dream state or the waking state. But if, as in the practice we did this morning, settling the mind is natural state, anger comes up and you simply observe its nature. You detoxify it. In that very moment, you're detoxifying it. You're taking the delusional element out. And you may note, the next time you experience anger, should it happen again, that in the very nature of anger, there is a luminous quality, bright, sharp, radiant. That doesn't necessarily mean undiluted, but it's got a lot of, a lot of heat, a lot of, a lot of light. It's sharp, luminous. It's a quality of the substrate consciousness. 
And likewise, should you ever again experience craving, lust, desire, attachment, greed, it kind of feels good. That's why people keep on doing it. The anger seems to knock down obstacles, and the greed, the obstacle, anger seems to knock down, bludgeon away that which is obstructing us from getting what we want. And the craving and the desire seems to be our greatest ally to get what we want. I want more money. Good. And I start imagining how happy I'm going to be if I have more money, lots and lots. And so it gives me some happiness, and then I lunge towards what I think is going to give me more money. But it kind of feels good. What are you doing? I'm going to make more money. You know? And there's the bliss. It's right there in the mental affliction itself, and the bliss, too, is traced back to the substrate consciousness. So when we go to tomorrow and we're going into the deepest, attending to the deepest level of suffering that's related to delusion, delusion when it's detoxified is serenity. It's non-conceptual. Right? So quite interesting. Okay. So find a comfortable posture. We'll venture into the practice, cultivating compassion, first of all, for ourselves and then venturing out to other sentient beings. We begin, as always, on a very gentle note of allowing the awareness to descend into the field of the body right down to the ground. The awareness then rising up and permeating the whole field of the body, this field of tactile sensations right to the crown of the head, mindfully present throughout the body. Settle your body in its natural state imbued with the three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Breathing without constraint and without effort, without pushing or pulling. Let the breath flow effortlessly. Relaxing deeply with every out-breath. Releasing tension in the body, releasing the breath, and releasing thoughts with each exhalation.
then for a little while, calm this conceptually turbulent mind with mindfulness of breathing, settling your mind with a quality of ease, releasing all concerns about the past and future, resting, resting your mind in stillness in the present moment, and clearly illuminating the sensations of the in and out breath. Now let's move from this more passive mode of shamatha to the more active mode of meditatively cultivating this aspiration of compassion and directing this compassion, this yearning to be free of suffering and its causes, directing it first of all inwards. As we direct our attention to our own pasts, reflect upon the extent of suffering we've experienced that we've imposed upon ourselves by getting caught in the grip of attachment, craving, afflictive desire. Resulting in the suffering of change. rather than fusing our very identity with this mental affliction and then recriminating ourselves, scolding, chastising ourselves for being greedy and so on, simply attend to the mental affliction. Very much like a physical disease, but this is a mental one. Reflect upon its consequences, repercussions for ourselves and for others when greed, craving dominate the mind.
consider the wonderful hypothesis from Buddhism that this mental affliction is not intrinsic to our very identity, not hardwired into the mind. But if you will, symbolically imagine the deepest purity of your own awareness, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, as an orb of radiant white light at your heart, With each in-breath, now arouse this aspiration to be free of suffering and its causes, specifically the suffering aroused by craving, greed, attachment. And imagine the resultant suffering and the underlying mental affliction in the form of a darkness, and with each in-breath, as you arouse this aspiration, imagine this darkness dissolving into and being extinguished in the light of your heart. each in-breath arouses yearning, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And with each in-breath, letting your imagination play, imagine realizing such freedom here and now. Imagine yourself becoming free. Free of the suffering of change so you can face all the vicissitudes of life in a world that is constantly in flux, but not suffer because of the change to which you are exposed.
as we direct this aspiration in upon ourselves, we arouse a spirit of renunciation, a spirit of emergence, to emerge from delusional existence of samsara to greater and greater clarity and awakening, liberation. Let's extend this aspiration now to others. You may, if you wish, focus now on some individual you know either personally or by way of the media, indirectly, who suffers and very likely causes other people to suffer because of being dominated by this mental affliction of craving. Reflect closely on the underlying cause, this mental affliction, and the resultant suffering the suffering of change, as well as blatant suffering, of course. It is so easy to look upon such people with contempt, with a sense of moral superiority, as we cognitively fuse the person with the mental affliction and the resultant behavior. But this itself is a form of delusion. So arouse this aspiration of compassion, focusing on the person. aspiration being, may you be free of the suffering of change. And even more importantly, may you be free of the underlying cause, this mental affliction of craving and attachment. each in-breath, imagine the suffering and its causes of this individual in the form of a dark cloud. With each in-breath, imagine drawing in this darkness, <coughs> dissolving it, extinguishing it in the light at your heart. As you arouse this aspiration, may you be free. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Knowing full well that you are venturing into the world of possibility, which is not yet the world of actuality, with each in-breath, imagine this person actually emerging from, becoming freed from the suffering of change.
this underlying cause. Imagine this person being free. As if recovered from a disease. Now for the the remainder of this session, Let your attention rove to other individuals, to communities, perhaps even to nations on occasion, where there is the suffering of change, perhaps not yet manifesting as suffering. Nevertheless, the seeds are there because the country, the community, the individual, at whatever level, dominated by greed, attachment. Attend once again without contempt or condescension, but with compassion and practice as before.
release all appearances and objects to the mind, release all aspirations, and let your awareness come to rest in its own nature, simply resting in the knowing of knowing, the awareness of awareness. After the chime sounds, remain for a little while quietly meditating, following the method of your choice.
And let's bring the session to a close. So, you'll recall that the far enemy, the mental affliction that is diametrically opposed to loving kindness, is ill will. And ill will being the aspiration that others not find happiness. That's pretty straightforward. Don't feel happy when other people meet with success, when they're admired, when they have a good reputation, and so on. So there's ill will and loving kindness directly antidotes that. The two cannot possibly arise in the same mind stream at the same time. And that which is diametrically opposed to compassion is called cruelty. And this is the yearning that others may actually suffer. It is the aspiration. May you, may you find suffering and the causes of suffering. So when I was studying ethics at Stanford many years ago, I had a very, very good course on ethics, the good life. And as we an outstanding professor and as we surveyed the various vices to which human beings are prone and there's such a wide variety big big pick many to choose from we reflected upon which was the most destructive of all human vices of all human vices which was the most destructive in terms of a mental something going on mentally and that's for anyone to decide if, or for ourselves whether it's greed whether it's envy arrogance contempt what have you but I think there was a pretty strong consensus in the class, and I know there was a consensus in my mind that of all the virtues, the one that is most toxic, the most really horrendous, is cruelty. It's cruelty. And so if compassion can antidote that, and it does, then it's a tremendous service, tremendous transformation, that we're simply not no, less and less and then not at all vulnerable so matter, no matter what happens, whatever evil we witness in the world, cruelty is not the response. Right? So, compassion said to be the very root, the root of the Buddha Dhamma. Why the Buddha got off the seat under the Bodhi tree? Why he walked to Sarana? Why did he move? Why didn't he just stay there? He had achieved what he was seeking. He had achieved awakening. He was enjoying it. He spent seven weeks just enjoying it. But why did he move? Why not just hang out there, grow old and die? and just be happy the whole time sitting under your Bodhi tree. And it was compassion. There was really nothing else because there was nothing from the world that he wanted for himself because he, he had found the, the fulfillment of what is called svaartha, his own, his own ends, his own purpose, his own longings were completely fulfilled. There was nothing more. So now the only reason to come out would be to fulfill the longings of others. So that's how Buddhism happened. That's the history of Buddhism in a nutshell. So, questions or comments, insights, revelations? We'll start with Peter. Thank you, Lizzie. (coughs) 
have two questions, but just one at a time. Yeah. The first is we've been talking about death. We've been talking about the time of death and the right. transition into the bardo. Yes. And about the opportunities for realisation and how important from the Buddhist perspective that time is. Right. So I wondered from your perspective if that had implications for the way we handle the body around the time of death and about the timing of, say, cremation or burial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very practical question. It's one that will be relevant to everyone here at some point. Um, sure. I know the, the, the Buddhist culture that I, I know best, obviously, is, is the Tibetan Buddhist. And they take this very seriously because there can be hidden yogis. You never know. You never know. You know, people who are highly realized, don't they don't carry a neon sign. And often they, t they, they don't speak about it at all. I heard a report. In fact, it was investigated, of all things, by a Roman Catholic priest, a man I got to know quite well, because uh, he was encouraged. If this, you don't mind the tangent, you know me. Uh, but Father, no, Brother David Stendelrost, quite a remarkable Benedictine monk, an American, he encouraged his student, this, uh, this priest, uh, to check out rainbow body, evidence for people achieving rainbow body. And the only, only place that we've had rainbow bodies being realized in the recent past was in Tibet. There haven't been any, to my knowledge, in Nepal, India, and so on. And so um, Francis Tiso, that's his name, the, 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 the priest, um, and why the, the monk, Brother David Stendelross, was interested is he thought possibly that Jesus himself had achieved rainbow body. That is, his, his body was put in there, and then suddenly when it manifests later, first recognized by Mary Magdalene, and then the other disciples and so on, he had this body that could appear and disappear, but it could be touched. Remember, doubting Thomas, touch my wounds. Touch. So he could touch it, and yet he could just demanifest, and then manifest again. And so with a very open mind, this monk thought, maybe Jesus achieved rainbow body. If somebody else has done that more recently, let's learn about it. So he sent his student, uh, Father Francis Tiso, to Tibet. This is about 10 years ago. I have the article, by the way. It's written up. And he did some exploration. He you know, checked on the grapevine. Anybody achieve rainbow body recently? And somebody did about 10 years ago or so. It's back in eastern Tibet. And I'll finish the story, and then I'll really answer your question. And there was one monk, he's a Galupa monk, that when he died, his body, they, they wrapped him in his, in his outer robe, the golden robe, or the, the, the yellow robe, and they just put, they let, put him in state. They just left him there. And then, this was in a small village in eastern Tibet, and then just rainbow lights came out, and when they came to look again, there was just hair and nails left. He completely, his body had evaporated, he achieved rainbow body. Well, one might think he would be one of the great celebrated yogis of Tibet. I mean, he achieved rainbow body. That's a pretty big deal. And his reputation in town was he was just a sweet old monk who liked to recite Omani Pemahung a lot. That's what they knew about him. Just a really Omani Pemahung kind of guy, you know? And then, but then he showed, it was kind of like a poker game. You keep your hands, you keep your cards very close to your chest. And then when you die, full house. <laughs> royal flush you know so he showed it only when he died and so it would have been a shame if they'd been messing around with his body before it was able to come to the culmination of that process because he finished that process and then he was really then finished only with the rainbow body so you might recall earlier I cited Dujum Lingba the 19th century Dzogchen master 
saying that when you slip into the substrate consciousness, that blackout period just before the clear light of death, you may remain there. Now you're dead from a Buddhist perspective. Once your psyche has dissolved into the alaya vijnana, or the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, at that point you're dead. You're, the heart has already stopped, the breathing has already stopped, but now you're dead, right? But you can be dead and not be moving on to the clear light of death for six hours or up to three days, he said, you, you recall. Well, during that period, there will not be any decomposition of the body. So now I'm really answering your question. There won't be any decomposition of the body. The consciousness is still there. Subtle consciousness is still there. The substrate consciousness is still there in the heart chakra. And the prana, this is the, this is the physical part, the prana that is indivisible from that subtle continuum of mental consciousness, in, called, in Dzogchen called alaya vijnana, substrate consciousness, that's still there. So the body isn't dead, it's still got this little kind of orb of light, so to speak, right there in the heart chakra, which means the body can't decompose yet. Right? Well, that can last for as long as three days, and it's not even the clear light of death. It's just the substrate consciousness. Now, one may be in that experience lucidly. If you've achieved shamatha, then you have a real shot at being dead and knowing it. If you've not achieved shamatha, never, or never had a lucid, dreamless sleep, because this is the other way that you might have some direct recognition. In fact, somebody just recently mentioned to me an experience of being in dreamless sleep and knowing it, being awake while in dreamless sleep. It's called lucid dreamless sleep. Somebody just mentioned to me that recently in this retreat. So it's not inconceivably difficult, right? So if one has, had been, been very experienced as a lucid dreamer in the practice of dream yoga, for example, and you become very experienced in becoming lucid in the dream, recognizing the dream state as a dream state, even more subtle, being in dreamless sleep and recognizing that you're in dreamless sleep while in dreamless sleep, then you have a chance of entering into that blackout period in the dying process and being lucid. It could be good. It could be good. It can last up for three days. And then comes the clear light of death. Well, again, we don't know. I heard of another person, it was just a few years ago. He was from a monastery in Kathmandu. It was a monk, Tibetan monk. And as far as anybody knew, he was the ritual master. He, did, he knew all the pujas and the, ring the, the, you know, the drums and the bells and the chanting and all the liturgy. He was the chupin, the ritual master. Well, that's good. You know, it's, it's a job. Somebody's got to do it. And that's all he's known for. Oh, he's a good ritual master, a good guy. He died and he spent, I think, seven days in the clear light of death. So no rainbow body, but it kind of like was a wake-up call to his comrades. Whoa, never thought you had it in here. They didn't know he was a meditator. He was keeping it quiet, and that's very commonly the case among traditional Tibetan practitioners, is they, they keep it very quiet. Outwardly, they're just nice. They're just pleasant. Inwardly, oh, maybe off the charts. So again, in that case, here this person went into the substrate consciousness, the clear light of death dawned, was revealed, he recognized it, and the lovely metaphor you might have heard of is since he clearly had already realized Rikpa before that time, this is, they say, it's like the the, the child clear light crawling onto the lap of the mother clear light. The child clear light was that which was you're accessing by means of meditation. You're cultivating the meditation, you gain access to it, you realize it. But the mother clear light is that which is waiting to meet you, rise up to meet you following the death period. And so it's those two kind of merging, the recognition merging. Well, that, of course, and now you'll recall, again from Dujo Mingba, if you've been able to abide in that type of samadhi, just resting in rikpa for a day, a 24-hour period, just boom, dropped into samadhi, and continuously realizing rikpa for like one day, 
then when it comes to clear light of death, you may remain for seven days. And so something like that kind of ratio. Well, now to finally really hone exactly in on your question, in Tibetan culture, where this is known, about every year or so, another person uh, abides in the clear light of death for days. It's really very com- well. It's pretty common every year. I, th- I think it happens, and so Tibetans all know that, and they know that. And, and recently, even after the the genocide in Tibet and all of that, even now, about every ten years, somebody is achieving rainbow body. Even now, and you can imagine, this is after an awful lot of damage. So this is widely known. It's not even questioned. Is any more? Than, do you really doubt that lasers exist? You may have, you may have seen one. You may have not. But really, who in his right mind doubts the existence of lasers? All you have to do is go to the right place. You'll see a laser. And so, likewise here. So in the Tibetan tradition, then, what they're waiting for. And now here's the short answer. You were waiting for it a long time. Is you wait until the body decomposes, until some clear sign, medical sign, this body is starting to to rot, it's decomposing. When that's happened, the show is over. The, the blackout period, finished. Clear light of death, finished. Decomposing. Right? So then, at that point, then the Tibetans are fantastically non-romantic. Utterly non-romantic. They would, it, the Tibetans would laugh their heads off if you took this piece of rotting flesh, put it in the dirt, and then started talking to it. Why are you talking to dead meat? Rotten meat to be... There's, not a, there's nobody in there. You know, or coming, bringing flowers and so forth. I mean, I don't want to ridicule really, but it is a bit weird to be offering flowers to dead meat. Because that's all that's in there, right? So, but as soon as it's clearly decomposing dead meat, then all the romance is finished. And they'll either burn it, which is a very common thing to do. Or when I, was, when I went to Tibet, the, not the first time, maybe the second time, uh, I saw two corpses that were given a river, a river burial, a water burial. The, the loved ones didn't have enough money for cremation. They didn't have m- enough money to do the sky barrel because you have to pay somebody to do that, to chop up the body and so forth. They just threw the, they just threw the body in the river you know, and let the fish eat it. So that's about as unromantic as it gets. But that's the short answer, is you wait for decomp- decomposition. So here we are in the West. Um, if a person can die at home, you know, obviously there are very complex medical issues here and I don't mean to you know, intrude where I mustn't. But if medically it's okay to die at home, that would be preferable. Because then you're not obliged to immediately run to the phone and say, you know, father died. You don't have to do it right there as soon as he stopped breathing. You can wait a little bit. You know, and then make sure that the process is finished. I know that when in 1992 I went with this team of scientists and we were able to witness a yogi who had passed away seven days earlier and his clear light of death experience had, had finished only hours before we arrived that we were told if we come one day earlier and actually, actually witnessed him while his, he was still in the clear light of death experience, no way would they let us touch the body. You don't mess with it at all. Richard Davidson and his team at the University of Wisconsin only about two years ago now, they were allowed to do some studies of a very accomplished yogi who spent, I think it was 14 days, 17 days, in the clear light of death just a year or two ago. But they were not allowed to touch the body. Not allowed. So let alone anything like starting to take out, you know, organs and so forth. You just leave it be until the decomposition begins. Okay? So, part two. Uh, Quite a different question. Um, In the last couple of days, we've been talking about the irreconcilability of scientific materialism and the Buddhist worldview. Yeah, that's true. 
And we were talking in particular in the context of the public debate and academic conversation. Mm -hmm. But in that conversation, you were emphasising the need for first-person experience Quite of so. meditation. Quite so. And that, of course, involves a teacher or teachers. Yeah, it generally does. So my question is about, is about teaching, and it's about... In this context, we, we have the full Buddhist view and path and life. It's the full symphonic Yeah, I'm being, pretty, I'm being pretty unrestrained here. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have a very bleached out version of mindfulness in which all the Quite color so. and the moisture of, of the Buddha Dharma has been extracted. And it's, it's called secularized version, yes. And it's a very secularized mindfulness. And, right. and it even is in, in the context of the workplace. You know, mindfulness in, in the context of? Of the workplace. Workplace, so, yes. So mindfulness for productivity. Quite so. If you like. Yes. So there it's a... Increase your profit margin. It's like, uh, it's more like lift, lift music, if you like, rather than the symphony. Quite. So, so my question has two, two axes to it, if you like. The first is, do you think that there's, from your perspective, there's a minimum level of training and experience and supervision that's necessary for a teacher of shamatha? And... Related to that, is there, a, is there a point along the spectrum of extracting the Buddha Dharma where you think it's no longer helpful? Or is any mindfulness always good mindfulness? Mm -hmm. And why I'm thoughtful about that is that at the level of coarse mind, there are afflictions. People have their stuff. And the techniques are quite powerful. Yeah. And their experience has to be contextualized and understood from some perspective. Sure. So is there a point at, in that extraction where it becomes unhelpful because there's no longer a supportive context or no, no longer Understood. a construct? Understood, yeah. yeah. And the, there were two parts. So I, I, I so focus on what you're saying right now that I, I can easily miss the earlier part. I'm holding on the second part, but the first part was... Oh, the minimum for, for teaching shamatha, yeah. It's often emphasized in traditional Buddhist teachings that we're living in a degenerate era. And I don't think that needs a whole lot of persuasion. You know, there have been times in multiple cultures, Japan, China, Southeast Asia, Tibet, Mongolia, and so forth, when it was doing a lot better than it is now. You know, and, I and India, let alone India. So there we are. Rel it's all relative. But overall, Buddhism is not really flourishing now, like it has in many cases in the past. So relatively degenerate... And as I said, in, in, in degenerate times, it's still important to find a qualified teacher. But, what, but then we can shave it right down to the bone. And that is, what are the minimum requisites? If you look at cla cla classic Buddhist literature, there are ten qualities of a Mahayana, a fully qualified Mahayana Kalyanamitra, or spiritual friend. Uh, there are qualities of a, of a person who's teaching the, the Theravada, that is, mastery of the, of the Tripitaka, the Vinaya, the Abhidhamma, the suttas, really knowing them well, and also having good experience in sila, samadhi, panya, that would be a really qualified teacher. We go to Vajrayana, and oh my goodness, then it's off the charts, you know, the, the list of qualities, I think it's 20 if I remember, and they're rather intimidating, they're daunting, to be a fully qualified Vajra Acharya, right? They say, well, okay, that's all classic, and it would be really good if you can find such a person. If you find such a person, that probably person will probably have 10,000 disciples, and you'll hear them all, only over the uh, intercom. 
you know, or the loudspeaker. So the chances of having a very close relationship may be not that great. And so in degenerate times, and when, then the question comes up, all right, that's how it should be. When Dharma is really flourishing, then people really do your very best to cultivate all those qualities so you're fully qualified as a teacher of Shravakayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. But the bare minimum, here it is. And that is when you come to a teacher, somebody who's teaching shamatha, for example. The, the fundamental question is, does this person have more knowledge and or experience, knowledge and or experience, of the practice than you do? That's one. It's not enough, though. The second quality is, is this person teaching out of altruism? Okay, if it's not altruism, it's something else. And that something else is probably not going to be in accordance with Buddha. But it, I mean, it was altruism that that made the Buddha rise from the, the Bodhi seat and go to Saranat. If it was some other, me- uh, some other reason, then we'd really want to know why. You know? But if those two qualities are there, if the motivation truly is to be of service, then that's good. And if the person has greater knowledge and or experience in oneself, that's enough. That's enough. So I remember when I visited, this is an analogy, I visited the Soviet Union back in the 1985, I think it was, 86. And I was, I was a monk at the time, and I was invited as part of a religious peace delegation. So we had a rabbi, we had a Hindu swami, there are Christians and so forth. And I was, the, I was the token Buddhist. And we arrived there in Moscow. We also went to uh, Leningrad. And uh, I met with an underground cadre. It was illegal, basically, to be a Buddhist. And I met with an underground pod of Buddhists. You know? And there was one lovely young woman there among this small group. Now they're all, the, the head of it is like the head of head of Buddhism in Russia. He's, he's very, very well known, but back then he was the head of a little cadre. There's a young, one, a lovely young woman, maybe, I don't know, probably my age at that time, maybe in her 20s, and she hardly knew any Tibetan at all, but she was teaching the others because she knew a little bit more, and that's all that was needed, right? So that's the bottom line. But now in terms of the secularization, you, you use some very, very inter- good, to, to my mind, very appropriate terminology, the thinning out, the paling, the evisceration, I didn't think you used that word, but that's mine, of Buddhism, where people are just taking out everything that challenges their assumptions and challenges their priorities. Because the, the challenge that the Buddhists present, even from the time of the Buddha, he said, my teachings run against the grain. And that's in India 2,500 years ago. My teachings run against the grain. They're not going with the flow. They're going against the flow. If that was true in India 2,500, 2,600 years ago, then, which was not materialistic, then all, all the more so now. It goes against the grain. Well, people don't like to be rubbed the wrong way, to be told that their values are superficial and devoid of meaning, that the way of life is a waste of time, and that the worldview is diluted. They don't say, oh, tell me more. You know, By and large, they want to hear something better. So, so it can be very skillful means then, but, and your question is very appropriate, then at what point is it skillful means? Is it, at what point is it not even useful and maybe even detrimental? I mean, that's a question one can raise too. And so this was really this really struck home for me in 1990, when we had it was only the third minor life meeting. This was in Dharamsala. The first one was in '87, and then we had one the next year later. No, two years later. And then we had one one year later in 1990. We had one that Dan Goldman wrote up as the book Healing Emotions. And in this meeting, it was a very good meeting. Um, then uh, John Kabat-Zinn presented his mindfulness-based stress reduction. And he did a wonderful presentation. He's a lovely, benevolent, ethical, altruistic man. That's my evaluation. I think a lot of people share that. He's a very, very good friend. 
and he gave an excellent presentation of mindfulness-based stress reduction, and he showed the scientific evidence to show this really helps people. Well, the philosopher for that meeting was actually my mentor. In fact, he was the one that taught this course on ethics and the good life, where we identified cruelty as the worst of vices. He was there. So I invited him to be our philosopher. We always try to have a philosopher. And so he listened to John's whole presentation, how these methods, the three basic methods that John teaches, uh, have been largely taken from Buddhism, but then when teaching, not saying come from Buddhism, and nothing else, no Buddhist ethics, no Buddhist worldview, just here's the technique, it's taught in a medical context, this will reduce your stress, and that will be good for you. So, so my, my professor, he then turned to John after this presentation, and uh, no, actually he turned to His Holiness. He turned to His Holiness. And in, in a way, he asked your question. He said, Your Holiness, this presentation that, uh, that Dr. Kabat-Zinn just gave, um, from one perspective, this can look like plagiarism. That is, you're taking these practices from Buddhism. You're not giving credit where credit is due. Moreover, you're radically decontextualizing them. But in, and, and I'm elaborating a little bit, but it's not only a decontextualization, it's a recontextualization. You can't take a practice out of one context and put it nowhere. It's always going somewhere. And that somewhere, if it's complete materialism, then you've just recontextualized it in a completely materialistic worldview, a hedonic set of values and a consumer-driven way of life, and now have a little dab of Buddhist meditation or some facsimile of it. And so the question was, is this plagiarism? And is this, is this in accordance with Buddhism? What do you, what, in short, what do you think of this, what John's doing here? And His Holiness gave a very nuanced response. He said, first of all, and this ties in so nicely with our meditations this afternoon. He said the whole point of the Buddhist teachings, of the Buddha Dharma, in theory, the teaching, the practice, the whole point is to alleviate suffering. That's it. It's to alleviate suffering. That's what it's all about. And you see, I'm not saying anything more. That's it. And John's work, and he and, and many, many colleagues, it's at that time, he, oh, the last I heard it was 250 clinics worldwide. It's probably a lot more than that now. So it's helping thousands of people, tens of thousands of people all over the world. And so it's alleviating suffering. So the Dalai Lama said, this work is alleviating suffering. Therefore, it's a, from a Buddhist perspective, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. No ethics, no Buddhist worldview, all of that. It's decontextualized. The Buddha doesn't need credit. He's not saying, oh, John took away my credit. I'm not getting my... You know, not happening, you know. But he added this. He said, this is a good thing. It's alleviating suffering, and that's what it's all about. This is good. And he said, but don't mistake this for Buddhism. And that's a crucial point. That's a crucial point. Because once again, when we speak of Buddha Dharma, the worldview, and I'll just reemphasize the point I made a couple of days ago, but the, the way of viewing reality, not just simply a set of beliefs like a creed. Because sometimes people have a, have a set of beliefs, and it's not actually the way they view the world. You know, a person may be totally convinced uh, smoking cigarettes, a pack or two a day, is terribly detrimental for the health. I believe that. Uh, I'd like two packs, please. You know, they continue smoking, and they know perfectly well. So they believe this, and that's not their worldview. That's not what they're viewing when they when they light up. And likewise, an alcoholic may think, oh, alcohol is very detrimental for all these. You know, pass the booze. You know, so it happens all over the place. That the beliefs may be here, but the worldview is there. So. The Buddhist way of viewing reality, the Buddhist set of values and explicit practices like meditation, and then the, the way of life that is the context for both, these are profoundly and inextricably interwoven. Just as much as a materialistic worldview, a way of viewing reality that is materialistic, 
and a hedonic set of values and practices, and then a consumer-driven way of life, those all reinforce each other. They are just part of the same machine. And each one reinforces the other, just as the Buddhist worldview, meditation, and way of life all reinforce each other. Now, that's Buddha Dharma. That's Buddha Dharma. Now, what I didn't mention, and I think it's worth adding, is that I did say that to venture into Buddhist practice, you don't have to first adopt a bunch of Buddhist beliefs. That's not, it's never been true. The Buddha didn't ask that, and authentic Buddhist teachers ever since then haven't said, oh, I'll teach you this only if you believe this, this, this. No, venture in. So what I, but I find interesting here is that some people, when they're approaching Buddha Dharma, and I guess I'm one of them, I am one of these people, their first access is to Buddhist worldview. So for me, the first thing that really caught my attention was reading a book on Dzogchen when I was hitchhiking around in, in Switzerland in 1970. And it's view, it's all view. I didn't know how to practice, but it just it caught me like a fish. It was, like, it, it was the hook and I was the fish, and I've been reeled in ever since. So it was the worldview that captured me first, and then that got me really interested in practice. And the more I was involved in the practice, the meditation, then I saw, oh, there has to be a way of life that's conducive to supportive of the meditation. So some people, their avenue in may be by learning, taking a university course. And actually, I took a course, a whole one-year course in India, learned a little bit about Buddhism, but the professor impressed upon us that it was a very pessimistic religion, and I didn't think it was so appealing. So that didn't hook me at that time, but it was the book on Dzogchen that did. So for some, the entry may be studying Buddhist texts, worldview, ideas, theory, philosophy, and it may just stop there, in which case it's, as they say, purely academic. And it really has little or no impact on the life. It's just, it's just like some luggage you're carrying around. You know a lot about Buddhism. A lot of academics are like that. They always keep it off at a distance. You know, Buddhism, I'm very sympathetic to Buddhism. I kind of like Buddhism. You know, like carrying a canary around. You know, I kind of like the canary. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't mate with them, but I like them. You know? So... There's that possibility, but it can also lead to other things, venturing into the meditation or the way of life. For other people, they may take an MBSR course, or they may take Cultivating Emotional Balance course, the one that Paul Ekman and I devised, this 42-hour training. It's pretty secularized, and the Dalai Lama, with his endorsement, his encourage, make this accessible to everyone, right? So when we're teaching the 42-hour training of Cultivating Emotional Balance, we don't mention Buddhism, we don't talk about reincarnation and so forth and so on, just the methods and some theory that is still completely understandable in naturalistic context. But some people, whether it's MBSR, or taking simply a weekend Vipassana retreat, learning a bit of mindfulness, or taking a shamatha retreat, a little weekend shamatha retreat with me, for example, just getting that, their entrance is meditation. But by getting a taste of the meditation, then they may get more interested, oh, well, what's, give me more of the context. What's the theory around this? What's the bigger picture? And as they learn that, they say, oh, well, what's the bigger picture of a way of life? What kind of way of life supports the meditation? And so the entrance may be meditation that may, it may be re remain isolated. I know this is a long, a long answer, but I think this is very relevant. If you go into the meditation, whether it's shamatha, whether it's vipassana, whether it's zen, whether it's resigning om mani padme hum, if you just go in there and you're a satisfied customer, said, don't mess with my worldview, don't mess with my way of life, but I like to spend 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour each day doing the meditation. You can. And it will be appropriated to support your own values, your own worldview, and your own way of life, and the impact will be probably very, very trivial. And it will serve you your hedonic pleasure. You may make more money. You'll be more productive. You'll have less anxiety, less stress. You're going to have sex more often, enjoy movies more, and sleep better, which is all a good thing. 
But that's not exactly why the Buddha left the palace. Right? So it may remain isolated, just like one may venture into the Buddhist theory and just wind up an academic. And then just take it academically. Some people in a far, far, far away place believe such and such and such. Aren't they interesting? Very objective, hands off. One may, and then it just stops there. One may venture into meditation, keep it, keep it isolated, and then embed it in your own worldview, your own, your own. And of course, for some people, it's not necessarily materialism. There are Roman Catholic priests who will go for Vipassana retreats. They could practice shamatha. Why not? I've taught, I've taught shamatha to, to Christians, Hindus, Jews, and so forth. Uh, so it may stop there, and then it's just embedded in their own context. And others may be drawn. I know this happens. Others may be drawn to the, the ethics, the principles of nonviolence, of benevolence, of compassion that really do characterize Buddhist teachings on way of life and ethics. They say, you know, I really like that. I mean, th- those Buddhists are pretty nonviolent people as a group. They're really not that bad. I would like to, you know, say so they may be drawn to that. And then as they venture into Buddhist ethics, Buddhist ideals, Bodhisattva way of life and all of that, they might recognize, oh, part of the, Buddhist, the Bodhisattva way of life is meditation. Maybe I should bring in some of that. And you start going to meditation. Oh, this meditation is embedded in a worldview. Maybe I should check that out. So the entrance may be by way of way of life that leads you to meditation and on. So the point, so I think I would just, because I have so much admiration for the Dalai Lama, and I think he was exactly right on this point. Um, where, and now just flat out opinion, just my own subjective opinion. Um, I think all of this is fine. I mean, I've, I've devoted, I don't know how many hundreds of hours to developing and teaching, cultivating emotional balance. It's a secular program. And I know John very well. I know many MBSR teachers. I think what they're doing is wonderful work. And their definition of, of mindfulness isn't, isn't a Buddhist definition, in fact. But that doesn't matter because they're not teaching Bu- Buddhism. They're teaching MBSR. They're two different things. And they have some cross-pollination, but they are two different things. Um, so all of that is good. Where I feel it's not good is when people then take certain elements of Buddhism, present themselves as Buddhist teachers. Now, MBSR teachers, on the whole, don't, which is perfectly fine. But there are some people who present themselves as Buddhist teachers, and then they pick and choose out of just what they like out of the Buddhist tradition, and then they and then they say, and then they, and that's fine too. I mean, I pick and choose. I'm not teaching everything. I pick and choose those methods that I find really helpful, and the theory around it that makes it helpful. So I'm not teaching everything. I'm teaching those things that I found very helpful that I think are also core. So I see no fault in that. Basically, everybody does. No, no Buddhist teacher teaches all of Buddhism. There's not time. But where I think there's a downside, and again, this is my opinion, is when one picks and chooses and then also misrepresents. So one takes this modern definition, moment by moment, non-judgmental awareness of whatever comes up and says, this is the Buddhist definition of mindfulness. Well, no, it's not. There are no texts in the whole Buddhist tradition, Chan, Japanese, Southeast Asian, Indian or Tibetan or Mongolian, for which that's the definition of mindfulness. It's never been true. It's a modern definition. It's a 20th century definition. So that's misrepresentation. The, the, the definitions of mindfulness actually can find, be found all over the place. All you have to do is look, and there they are. But that's not the definition. So that's misrepresentation. I don't think that's helpful. When, and then if one is teaching Buddhist meditation and say, I, and I actually heard one Buddhist, a rather renowned Buddhist meditation teacher say, in Buddhism there's no good and evil. I think that's detrimental. That's really harmful. Because what she was trying to get, what she was saying is, you know, in this moment-to-moment awareness, just be not judgmental. Nothing's really good. Nothing's just evil. Nothing's really evil. Just, just be present. And then they say, embrace it all. And then they say, this is Buddhism. I'm sorry, there's nothing Buddhist about that at all. 
Not in any school. So the misrepresentation, I think, is wrong. And then the worst is in even denying that the Buddha said what he said, because one doesn't agree. So this happens also, by one writer in particular, is saying the Buddha never really believed in reincarnation. He just used that, he just picked it up from other people. He never even thought it was important. Another one's, uh, the Buddhist notion of, of nirvana as being complete extinction of, of mental afflictions, that's not, we shouldn't take that literally. That's, that's misleading. Because after all, we people here, we have not achieved it, so they probably haven't either. Therefore, chucking out the Buddhist notion of liberation, because they have not experienced it. And, say, and then the Buddhist tradition got it wrong. They're misleading. The Buddha didn't really mean that. He just said, cope better with your mental afflictions. I think this is really harmful, because this is misrepresentation, this distortion, and frankly, fraudulent. Fraudulent. When you say exactly the opposite of what the Buddha said, and then you said he said it. If you just want to refute what he said, that's fine, that's your choice. But to say exactly the opposite, and then attribute that to the Buddha, and then deny that he said anything that you don't agree with, I, I don't see how that's ethical. I think that's harmful. So, that's opinion. That's just an opinion. Oh, yeah. I'm full of opinions. You know that. So anything else coming up? Insights? Whatever. It doesn't have to be a question. We only have a few minutes. Yes, Andres. Um, yes, I have a question concerning the second dimension of suffering, yes. suffering of change. Right. And you were saying, especially with craving, there is always the seed um, of suffering within craving, yeah. within attachment. Mm -hmm. And um, while I understand it, and I, I can confirm it in many, many ways, mm -hmm. I... I can't really confirm it from my personal experience in all ways. Mm -hmm. So from my personal experience, I have the impression that there are situations where this is not 100% true, that sure. there is craving, yeah. and then there is satisfaction, and there is no suffering following after that. Right. So. <coughs> and here's where I draw, draw, draw a distinction. Um, you may be right, and I, but I want to draw a distinction between craving and desire. Because unfortunately, because I'm a translator, and unfortunately translators sometimes get sloppy. And where they mean to say the mental affliction, the klesha of tanha or raga, which are mental afflictions, they translate this as desire and then say the Buddhist ideal is to be devoid of desire. Well, the Buddha left home, or the Gautama left home out of a desire to be liberated. He left the Bodhi tree to walk to Saranath out of a desire to help liberate these five companions of his and then everybody else that he could. And so a very important distinction must be drawn if one's going to have clarity of understanding between desire and the mental affliction that I'm, that I'm translating as craving, attachment, and so forth. So desire may be wholesome. The desire to help another person who's suffering and to alleviate their suffering, that, that's, that's virtuous. You'll have that all the way to until you're a Buddha. A desire may be ethically neutral. That is, presumably some, some people here are hungry and in about five minutes will go off and satisfy that desire. That's not virtuous. It's not non-virtuous. You're hungry. Go off and eat. Not a problem. And you get satisfied. This is good food. So that would be a case. I want some food. I'm hungry. Let's go eat. You go eat. You pick out what you like. You eat it. You're satisfied. You put it away and you're satisfied. There was no suffering there. There was no suffering. You, you wanted some food. You ate it. You're satisfied. It was good enough. 
better than good enough. And then it's finished. And, there, and that's it. There's no suffering at all. And that was an ethically neutral desire. There can be malevolent desires. Clearly, one can desire things that are really you know, very harmful. And so desires can be wholesome. They can be unwholesome. They can be neutral. But if the desire is rooted in delusion, if the desire distorts our way of apprehending the object of desire, it's rooted in delusion, it distorts that, and then arises this, this grasping onto it, then it's a mental affliction. So now that I've drawn that distinction, would you still say that you've experienced craving in which there were no aftershocks, no vulnerability, no repercussions at all of any kind of suffering? I have to go, go back and think about it more. <laughs> yeah, good, good. We still have another five and a half weeks. Good. The, there's a wonderful principle in Buddhism, and that is if something is true, the more carefully investigate it, the truer it will appear. And if something is false, even if it, in first impression it looks true, the more carefully investigated, the, the falser it will appear. So if what I just said has validity to it, the deeper you think about it, the truer it will appear. And if what I said was nonsense, then you can let me know. Anything else coming up? According to this question, uh, once I heard from a uh, speech of His Holiness that it's better to make a division to two types. First is desires, uh, which fruit is bad, and second one, something like motivation, which fruit is good. Mm -hmm. Maybe such type of division would be more appropriate. Yeah, are you referring to Döpa and Kunlong? Döpa, so good. So the, the word I was translating as desire... It's a very close translation. I think it's very straight. Desire is dupa. dupa. I think it's a very good translation. And then there's the, the, the term that we're standardly translating as motivation in Tibetan as gunlong. So this came up earlier from Chakdor. Um, it is, and that is on the one hand, and it's still a, still a response to Andreas, on the one hand, if, we're, if we really have honed our introspective abilities, we may monitor the type of desires yearnings, aspirations, and so forth that arise in our mind stream. And if we can do so with a lot of clarity and precision, we may be able to recognize right there, aha, yes, this is, this is where it's rude and delusion. This is where it's distorting, excuse me, distorting my, my apprehension, my perception of the object. So we may be able actually to recognize it, uh, especially if, and here's a giveaway, here's a, cl a clear telltale sign that craving is arising, and that is when the object of the desire appears to be just 100% good, that it's something, it's an object, and it's just 100% desirable, right? That would be an indication that this is a mental affliction, right? And so, if we have very clear introspective abilities, the shejin, then we may be able to recognize, is this afflictive or non-afflictive? Nyomonche, nyomonche mayimba, afflictive or non-afflictive. But that's not the only way. We can see how desires arise in our lives, for all kinds of things, you know, including just wanting to scratch an itch. And then we can observe when I experienced that desire and then I, I acted upon it. Was there any resultant suffering? Was there any vulnerability to suffering? Did it, did it arouse anxiety and anything like that? And if one sees no repercussions and, and no detriment for anybody else either, no harm anywhere, no harm out, no harm in, then that would be an indication that is not afflictive, 
right? But the word kunlong, motivation, once again, just like dupa or desire, can be unwholesome, wholesome, or lumade, ethically neutral. One can have a motivation that is really harmful, wanting to go kill or what have you, motivation that's benevolent, and a motivation, motivation to go off and get some food. That's also a motivation. So they can both be any of the three. Marbe. So, and if I want to be enlightened, is it desire or motivation? It's both. Dupa. Dupa and dumba. Dumba, aspiration. Very close. Just about the same. So, Yongma shows this, this is the first line of the four immeasurables. May all sentient beings find happiness the cause of happiness. It's not a, it's, Kunlong means, as I understand it, this asper, this asper, I'm going to use the word aspiration, or just this, may all sentient beings find happiness and the causes of happiness. It's an aspiration. It's a dumba, aspiration. It's a dupa, it's a desire. It's a munlong, it's a prayer. But when we use the word kunlong, motivation, this, as I understand it, is always related to activity. It's always related to activity. Kunlong, it's kun totally arousing, long, it's getting up and moving. It's, it's like getting off your seat and going to Zaranath. That was a gun long. It's totally getting you up and moving you, setting you in action. Whereas, if one simply sits and just thinks, may all sentient beings be happy, well and happy. May all beings find happiness and the cause of happiness. Okay, meditation's done. What's for dinner? It was a desire. It might be maybe not very deep desire, but still, one is sincere. But if it's, okay, oh, finished. It's, not, oh, it's dinner time. Let's go. Then it's not a kunlong because nothing happened. The kunlong is, let's get some food. And I think that's a kunlong that's arising right now. <laughs> so, good. Um, so, I'll see you tomorrow morning. See you tomorrow morning. Enjoy your meal with as much desire as you like and no craving.